Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Hello, future minority doctors. Thank you once again for joining us today as we continue our interviews with medical students to share their MCAT success stories. As a reminder, the MCAT stands for a medical college admissions test, or in other words, the test you need to take in order to apply to medical school. Medical schools will use this score to consider admission to their medical school. We have devoted a series to the MCAT because many minority students struggle with performing well on the MCAT. I know I did, and my score was very mediocre. Dr. Marina and I figured that it might be good to have current underrepresented minority medical students who have done well on the MCAT to share ideas on how best to prepare for the MCAT. We hope by listening today, you're able to pick up on some helpful tips to better prepare you for the MCAT so that you too can be an MCAT success story. So today, we are pleased to have a future doctor, Aminta Kuyate. Aminta was born in Oakland, California, and is dedicated to eradicating the systems of oppression that create the health disparities for marginalized communities. As a medical student in the UCSF-UC Berkeley Joint Medical Program, her research is focused on building an anti-racist medical education curriculum. With over eight years of professional experience at the San Francisco Department of Public Health, Alameda County Public Health Department, and Children's Hospital Oakland, Aminta has a wealth of experience and passion for health, justice, and medicine and public health. In medical school, she's a student in the Program in Medical Education for the Urban Underserved, also known as PRIME program, a scholar in the American Cultures for Engaged Scholarship program, an office for Graduate Diversity Fellow for UC Berkeley, and she is one of the founding members of the White Codes for Black Lives chapter at UC Berkeley and leader of the Pathway Development Program that has reached hundreds of underrepresented minority pre-medical students. In addition to these pursuits, Aminta is a graduate student instructor of human physiology and the anti-racism and racial justice praxis course at Berkeley, and she is an Institute for Healing and Health Justice collaborator. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Aminta. Man, do you already have a resume built up and you're not even a doctor yet? I am so excited that you're going to be a doctor and I for sure would love to work with you. Oh my God, I'm just honored. Yeah, Yeah, it sounds amazing. So first we're going to start out by if you can just tell us a little bit about your background and what your upbringing was like, what motivated you to become a doctor, and if you're going to be the first doctor in your family. Yeah. um, So first of all, thank you so much for having me. And I'll try to speak slowly. I have a tendency to speed up when I get nervous. So my name is Aminta Ariette Bajan Kriate. I'm originally from Oakland, California. I moved around a lot. Um, so my childhood, I think we moved 12 times before middle school. So I learned how to make friends very quickly and adapt to new situations, something that is very helpful in my current field. I was a former community college transfer student. I went to Berkeley High, had a lot of academic challenges there. And so I went to community college. Um, I went to both San Francisco City College and uh, Berkeley City College and even took some classes at Laney and Alameda. So kind of all over the place to be able to transfer. I transferred to UC Berkeley and I did a undergrad um, degree in psychology while working. Um, I've always worked through college, after college, and even in med school, I'm working like I'm a teacher um, of human physiology and anti-racism stuff. So that career, right, that I've been building this whole time has been kind of filled in by a lot of things in between. 
um, from soccer coaching to working in restaurants to now later the CDC and doing research. And now um, actually I'm calling in from New York where I'm doing an emergency medicine fellowship um, at NYU. So um, I'm not the first in my family to be a physician. My dad's side of the family is from Mali and um, my grandmother and grandfather were both physicians. But I didn't have anyone um, here that I could talk to about what the real actual process of applying was. Um, my grandmother on my mom's side was a veterinarian and my grandfather was also a physician. And so I was driven by their like their purpose and what they did for their communities. But I really didn't have anyone to say, okay, but this is how you actually do it. And this is what it means to prepare for the MCAT or any of those sorts of things. So I learned a lot of what I'm going to share today through like really painful trial and error. So yeah, that's me. And that's why you're here, because I think for most of us, it's been trial and error. And we're trying to just make that part much easier if we we hear it and we know what mm-hmm. what to expect, what to do and so forth. So thank you. You know, you mentioned that you worked with the public health department. What exactly did you do with them when you were working with them? Yeah, so I started um, everything that I've had, every job that I've had pretty much has come from doing internships. Mm-hmm. So when I was in I think it was like high school. My mom made me do this like Saturday youth leadership thing that turned into a job at the Alameda County Public Health Department. It gave me like my first opening of experience of what emergency medical services was like. And so I like did a bunch of like internet things. Like I trained people on how to use an emergency alerting system, which was honestly one of the most boring things I've ever done in my life. But thank you so much, (laughs) Alameda County Public Health Department. Oh my God, Um, for the experience and opportunity. But it was just like, it was kind of tedious. And so I was like, oh, um, public health is interesting to me, but I didn't really know much about it outside of that. So I ended up taking actually classes at UC Berkeley, some decals and some, which are student run classes and some uh, public health classes, which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And then I was, I always tell this story. Um, I truly believe that I got into medical school because of lemon bars. Um, I was walking in one of our main campus buildings and this woman had a tray of lemon bars. And I was like, oh, like, where are you going? She was like, oh, like we're actually doing an info session for this pre-med internship. And I was like, I'm pre-med. Can I come? She was like, sure. And so I went and then I actually got that internship and it was at UCSF. Um, it was an undergraduate research internship. Um, and from there, I got exposed to even more public health stuff. And so I worked for the San Francisco Department of Public Health the two summers after that. I did the URI internship. And then the next summer, I applied for this summer HIV AIDS research program, SHARP, mm-hmm. at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. And I loved it so much, I actually came back and ran that program for five years. Wow. So that's what I was doing all through like undergrad and then after. But while I was preparing to apply, um, was I was working at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. And I did substance use research. I did um, accreditation stuff, workforce development stuff, CDC evaluation, writing grants, and mentoring students, which was like the most important part of it for me. That's really neat. It sounds like your life was molded you to get to where you are here today. <laughs> Yes, you just is- walked into it. You just walked into it. You were meant to be lemon bars. Yeah. <laughs> lemon bars. They've done a lot for me. <laughs> exactly. You know, you mentioned that um, just because we have some in- listeners that are in um, high school, you said you struggled in high school. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I was definitely a student who had senioritis as a freshman, which meant that I did not go to class. I'd even like I think this is a challenge of being like able to figure out these systems, right? I changed my phone number to be my phone number. So my parents didn't even get calls when I wouldn't go to school. So I'd figured out how to like kind of do my own thing. And I just didn't feel supported by my school at all or that I was in this like very large public school. And like there was one year and this definitely relates to my MCAT prep too, because there was one year where for general high school chemistry, we watched Mulan every single day. And so while I could recite 
the entire song, all the songs that I loved so much from that movie, like I literally never took a gen chemistry high school class. And so that was really detrimental when I got to college and I was like trying to like actually be pre-med and like at Berkeley, that was like devastating. So I ended up, I think I've dropped a general chemistry like probably six times just because it was um, related to that. I also had like family challenges that I was going through at the time. My stepbrother was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Again, like this was finally at the time in my life where we'd stopped moving around. My mom got remarried. There was just a lot of kind of personal stuff that came up. And I think looking back on it, I didn't have the emotional like regulation skills from like someone who grew up like trying to survive. And I was trying to like transfer that into thriving. And so I feel really grateful now like to have gone through those experiences because ultimately what I want to do is adolescent health and kind of be the person that I needed in those moments. So yeah. Um, yeah. High school was not fun. It was really fun and uh, not fun. And um, I feel very fortunate. I had a great community of people. Like I still have a bunch of friends from high school, but, and I live like literally six blocks away from where I went to high school, which is funny. But yeah, it was definitely more of a turned it around in community college, got a 4.0 and then went to Berkeley and I was like, okay, now's my time. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Just because I feel like within, you know, minorities, we go through a lot of instability throughout our lives and a lot of not knowing and feeling lost. And I think when you share that, um, Dr. Marina and I, we've been pretty much open books with a lot of the students we talk to um, and tell them about our story because they're able to relate and say, wait a minute. Yeah. I messed up a lot, but you know what? You can still get it together. Absolutely. <laughs> right? absolutely. Or your family was kind of crazy, but you can still <laughs> get it together. Yes. So we like to share just those those obstacles that we've had. Now, you also mentioned um, you went to a community college first and then transferred. Is that right? Okay. So if you can tell us about what that experience was like, just from going from a community college then to a four-year and to UC Berkeley, which is a very top-notch school. If you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And it it does kind of tie into the high school stuff because um, when I graduated from uh, Berkeley High, I was like, I want to leave. Like, I want to go, like, I need some distance from this place. A lot of my friends were going to BCC, which is right up the street. But I distanced myself a little bit and went to um, San Francisco City College, which was an amazing school. Like, it felt like a college campus, which was really nice. And I got to have that experience of, like, being on a campus and being surrounded by other students and being taught by professors that were all from like SF State, Cal State East Bay, and like even several professors from Berkeley. Um, so I just want to like say up front, a lot of people think that the quality of education at community college is, is less than, but actually some of the best professors that I've had have been at the community college level, alongside some of the worst academic um, guidance uh, that I've ever had. So both in high school and community college and at Berkeley, I've had academic advisors who, without looking at my transcripts, without asking me any questions, just me saying, I want to be a doctor someday. They're like, no, that's not going to happen. I was told to go to beauty school, which the listeners can't hear. But if you saw the state of my hair, you would say that's not necessarily my strongest suit. I figured it out later in life, but like, geez, I don't know where they got that from. And I was kind of told not to apply to Berkeley from an academic advisor at City College, even though he hadn't seen my transcript or anything like that. So it was this like kind of bizarre combination of like, really amazing teachers, really great other students, many of whom had really interesting life stories, who had also been through a lot of things, who could really look out for each other. And then getting to Berkeley, it was interesting because I had the same kind of experience with the counselors of them like not supporting me at all. But it was a very different student experience. I felt incredibly isolated and alone at UC Berkeley. I could go a whole day without seeing another Black student in any of my classes. Like 
And if I did, I'd be like, oh my God, like, hi. They'd be like, who are you? And I'm like, I don't know who you are either, but like other people of color, like other people from the Bay Area. It was really hard growing up here and then going to the school where I felt like it was so disconnected from my community. And Berkeley really relies on its history of activism and social movements and things. But it's not really reflected in the student body today. And it's not really reflected in the goals of even the administration today. And we saw that in how they treated students who were protesting for Black Lives Matter and things like that. So Berkeley was a very, it was a very big culture shock. And like I said, I was a psychology major because I wanted to understand, like as I was developing my interest in the human body and in medicine, I wanted to understand how like my, like our mind influences how our body works and things like that. And then public health added on and how we all operate in society and how all of these things contribute to making healthy people. I loved my major. I despised being pre-med. It was the least supportive environment that I've ever been in. Like people would literally close the elevator doors on you so that you couldn't get to class in time. So you couldn't like ask questions from the professor. Like I had one professor who would not answer questions in office hour. He would just play his guitar and we had to like go and listen to him play his guitar. And I was like, I'm at Berkeley. I'm paying a lot of money to um, really not get supported by any of these people. But then I found the right like programs that really supported me. And one of them that I have to shout out is the Biology Scholars Program at Berkeley. They're considering closing it. And if anyone is listening, uh, please don't. We need that program and we need programs like that. And like Yuri that I mentioned and Sharp, the summer research programs that I did, because that's where I found people who really believed in me. But the transition was really difficult. And I think it's a similar transition of like going into medical school of like really important to find your people really early. Definitely. If there's a listener right now that's in college and is feeling the way that you did, what would you tell them? Like, how did you find that group or that people or the support? How did you adjust? Because you still did well. So I'm sure all of your resiliency throughout your years helped. But what would you tell them? Yeah, I would tell them, I think there's this idea that once you're like, get into these academic settings that you have to be a different person and that you can't bring your whole self or that you have to cut yourself off from the people or the communities that made you who you are. I would say that's absolutely not true. It's actually so important to go back to those communities and to make sure that we stay connected with our friends. Like I was like, oh, I'm at Berkeley now. Like I've got study all the time. It's like, cool. Whether I study six hours or 12 hours, like that's not actually going to make that big of a difference. But if I spend some dedicated time studying, but then I go home and see my family or I go see my homies like that, was really important for like me to be a whole human person that could get through the hard times of being at Cal. And like I went through some really intense stuff. Like I lost a friend to cancer and I had um, a health condition that required me to take medical leave. So it wasn't all like, oh, I just found my people and it was all daisies. But it was um, being able to have my people to rely on made it possible. And I know that's kind of the same thing that everyone says, but like, I think in those moments, we can feel really alone, especially in the institutions and feel like people might not understand what we're going through. But I promise people, will. you just have to ask for help. Yeah, we've dedicated an episode to asking for help because a lot of times that's what we don't do. Yeah, you you remind me, I I actually also went to a community college to do my pre-med. I'm a psychology major as well. (laughs) (laughs) Now, academically, Um, What did you struggle with the most, do you think, once you got to college? What do you think was your hardest class? I was terrified of calculus because I was like, math is not my thing. And that was a big part of my identity of math not being my thing. And then I got to calculus and I was like, oh, this is just word problems. Like, I can do that. Um, Chemistry uh, was a big challenge. Like, you know, being able to recite Mulan at Berkeley wasn't like necessarily super helpful. 
But I, one of the things that I think I did really well at Berkeley was that there were so many student resources available and student study courses that a lot of people just don't do. But they had like these concurrent classes that would be taught alongside Gen Chem or on side calculus that were run by the Student Learning Center. And I took every single one of those classes that I possibly could because they would make me go from like, again, like that 12 hours of studying to six hours of studying, but getting through the same amount of material. The switch from doing my upper division psychology classes and my bio, like those other classes was challenging because they just require a different kind of daily intensity of academic work. But I did actually most of my pre-med requirements through my post-bac. So at Berkeley, I kind of really just did uh, psychology major stuff, some public health major stuff, and then um, gen chem and calculus. I uh, was working all through undergrad up to 25 hours a week. So I could only take the minimum amount of units. And so that was also challenging, but like you got to learn that time management at some point. At some point. And so that was um, still helpful to this day for sure. But yeah, I took a lot of those classes kind of one at a time through a post-bac program um, through the UC Berkeley Extension and at community college. So I really tried to like set myself up to be successful in that way. And I think that the imposter syndrome and just the anxiety of like, oh my God, these classes mean so much. Like I have to do well in these classes. That was, those were big hurdles that took up a lot of space in my brain that once I stopped focusing on that and actually just like taking the class, I started doing a lot better. Yeah, not worrying about what everybody else thinks, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, or like my whole future is based on this one exam and I'm like, no. And I can promise y'all, like I don't think I've ever failed anything as badly as I failed my calculus final. Um, Out of 300, I think I got 25 points, which I'm sure they just gave it to me for turning it in with pretty much nothing on it. I had 100% in that class until the final, and then I got a C. uh, And that C got my degree, and I'm proud of that. Um, And I still got an event school because nobody cares about calculus. Exactly. That's how I felt about physics. I said, a C is okay with me. Yes. Yes. I've got to get through it. (laughs) So when did you decide that you were going to take the MCAT and then how did you prepare for it? Because you had a lot of things going on. You were working a lot and school and everything else. Yeah. And I actually decided I knew knowing myself and I will definitely do the same thing for step one. I knew that I was not going to do dedicated studying time just like by myself. Like I knew that I needed a course and there was this, the Berkeley Review had come to our school a couple of times and like given a few lectures and I was like, oh, this is great. It's in my neighborhood. I can just go there. It's two hours every day. So when I got to kind of the last semester of courses, I was like, okay, I'll take finish all my courses and then I'll do the MCAT. My mom's like, or while you're taking these courses, you could also take the MCAT. And I was like, uh, literally, that's impossible. Uh, I don't know how you expect me to be superhuman right now. But it actually was really wonderful because I took the MCAT while I was taking Gen Chem like two and uh, physics, which were major parts obviously, of the MCAT, that I actually ended up being my best sections on the MCAT because they were so fresh in my mind. So I, in terms of planning, I knew that I wanted to have biology and biochem like firmly under my belt um, and have enough time to like go back and review them, not be learning stuff. So kind of the year after I finished that and just finishing up gen chem and physics, I was like, okay, I'll start studying in January. I'll take it in April and that'll give me enough time to submit May 1st because I really wanted to, or to upload my application to submit June 1st, because I really, I cannot stress enough the importance of applying early. And of course, that's not what happened. My dad actually ended up having a heart attack while I was studying for the MCAT. I was in the Berkeley Public Library 
And we had just been talking with my friend who was also studying for the MCAT with me, which was wonderful. Um, I highly recommend finding someone who has the same threshold of like, this is garbage, but we have to do it <laughs> and doing it together. Um, but I got a call and my dad was in the hospital. Thankfully, he was okay. He's all recovered now. But that was a big thing kind of in the middle of like trying to apply and do all this stuff because you're like, okay, well, life, please just pause and I'll do the MCAT and then I'll come back. Um, I said, nope. So I ended up delaying and I took the MCAT, I think June 1st and then got my scores July 3rd or whatever, before, right before the holiday, saw my scores. And then I said, I'm going to shoot my shot. And so I added like 10 additional schools to my MCAS application because I was like, I'm going to go for it. Why not? This, this actually worked out. So yeah, I planned for three months of studying and I ended up taking six months because I took pretty much a month off to take care of my father and just kind of get my head back in the game. In terms of preparation, did you want me to talk about preparation? Yeah, if you can. Yeah. Yeah. I knew myself, like I mentioned that calculus exam and others. I was not, I'm not the strongest test taker in terms of like, I have a lot of anxiety around testing and I know that I can make a lot of really simple, silly mistakes because they go too quickly. And I would really, even now tell people that like 40% of the MCAT is learning how to take the test, like, which seems ridiculous because it's like so much content that you have to know, but like so much of it for me was doing practice exams and this uh, review course that I took. Um, the course was three months and then I studied kind of for three months, or I guess two additional months on my own. I didn't actually love my course that I took. I thought they were a little bit too intense for the level that I needed. There's things now, even as a, I'm a rising third year med student, we're just learning now that I had to, I thought I had to know for the MCAT that I absolutely didn't have to know. But there were things that I never would have known that I had to know if I hadn't taken a prep course. Like the values of sine, cosine, and tangent. Like you have to memorize that before you go. And I literally never would have done that if I hadn't taken this prep course and they hadn't drilled that into me. And I remember like one night in the library being like, I'm not going to be a freaking doctor because of sine, cosine, and tangent. This triangle is going to end me. So like, but like having the structure of this course where it was just like every day you go for two hours and then you study an hour before and an hour after. And that's four hours a day. I was like, I can do that. Two hours of someone telling me what I need to know. And then two hours of me directing myself and then having a friend who was like, okay, we're going to just bring our snacks into the library. But all of that aside, I think the most important thing that I did for MCAT prep was I took a ton of practice tests. How many? Do you remember? Pro yeah, I do. Because um, every time I tell people, they're like, are you kidding me? Because it's the most of a, I've heard of any other med student. I took 11 practice tests. And we're talking full length when the MCAT was eight hours. So like that's 88 hours of seated test taking. And I wore the same outfit every time. I ate the same food once I figured out what I was going to eat. I was like, I am a marathon trainer. And this is what I do. I wore my, I like that. my hoodie. I had my Jordans. I was like, I know I'm comfortable. I made a playlist. I would walk in like I was LeBron, like ready to do it. Like, you know, Serena Williams, like ready to um, kind of do my thing. And so I picked like really beautiful places on campus to study. Um, I highly recommend if you're an undergrad student to go to the grad student lounges. They have nice things there. I studied at the law school. They had like this really beautiful library and I just kind of walked with purpose and no one really asked me. So I just went in there and I would do my full links there. And I did, I knew I was going to take the test on Friday. So um, in the two months before, every Friday I was taking a full length exam. And so by the time I got to mine, I was just like, it's just Friday. This is what we do on Fridays. And then the next day I review everything, everything that I got wrong, everything that I got right, because it's not just enough to know why you got something wrong. You also have to know why you got it right. Because if it was a guess, that's not really helping me. 
and having a friend to kind of do it with was really helpful and knowing how to shake it off when things don't go well. Like I started at a 500, which is the 50th percentile. And I ended, uh, and like the 40th percentile in chemistry and physics, like, which, you know, people get into med school with those scores, but the schools that I was hoping to get into in the region that I wanted to be in, I was like, that's not going to work for kind of what I want. And then at the end, I tested in the top 10% and 97th in chemistry and physics, which was a shock to me um, when I got my score. (laughs) Thank you. But I really think it was because of those practice exams and just doing it diligently. So you only took the MCAT once then? Mm. Okay. And I think what helped a lot probably was just taking those practice tests, which I feel like that was my mistake that I didn't do what you did. That's a great approach. I really like that marathon type of approach training because I think it kind of just eases yourself to as to what's predictable. So if you know what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, even your playlist, like you said, it almost provides a sense of comfort on the actual day. Absolutely. Because that's when anxiety is like through the roof. How did you feel on the day when you went to take the MCAT? It was so weird because I was so calm. I was like Stone Cold Steve Austin. I was like, this is, I do this. Let's go. And I had actually gone. And if you can do this, some testing centers won't let you, but like at least go fight, like figure out where uh, your exam is going to be. So that I wasn't like the day of like panicking of trying to figure out where I was going to go. I actually ended up taking the MCAT across the street from where my mom works. And so I could, I was like, my mom was like across the street from me. I'm in Oakland. Like I've got my like playlist ready. I knew I like got an Uber there. Cause I was like, I don't want to trust any, whatever. And I had like three people on standby just in case like anything happened to like drive me there. Mm-hmm. And I walked in and the place where I took it is in downtown Oakland. And I swear, like if you go back and measure the hallways, they have this like long hallway of doom that just looks like it's endless. But it's actually because the hallway gets smaller because the level, the floor isn't like fully level. And I'm like, this is some like scare tactic stuff. <laughs> and what I didn't know that I had figured out because I had gone there before is that I thought everyone who was there that day was there to take the MCAT. And someone on the day of, I remember them finishing in like two hours. And I was like, oh my God, like, how did you finish MCAT? My eight hour exam in two hours. Turns out there's people there just taking all types of tests, which was really helpful to know because then it's like, oh, like. I'm not racing against you. I'm really just competing with myself. So the day of, I went in, I almost got in trouble because I tried to bring my chapstick in with me, which you cannot do. Um, So just knowing that, uh, now I tell people, just like know that you can't literally bring anything in with you and you have your little whiteboard. I had also practiced, I'm very much a, a paper and pen person, but I had practiced all of my practice exams and all of my quizzing and stuff on computers so I could feel really comfortable kind of using the testing equipment. And I took extra time on my first break because I knew that I was really good at cars and I didn't need all that time. Turns out I actually did because it was the hardest car section that I've ever had because it was all economics and it was painful to read, honestly. Mm-hmm. Something about like economics and finance and just like all of the things that I absolutely despise reading. Um, so it was like training my brain to not be bored. But then like the biochem and chemistry, all of that came and went and then psych went. And I left being like, it was a very bizarre feeling because I was like, I either knew absolutely nothing or I think I might have did really well. Like I feel really good about this. I didn't expect to feel that way. And it was hard because I saw this girl who had like came in the same time. And I think she actually was taking the MCAT and she had come in chugging like an Americano, like a five shot Americano because I could see it on her cup and like eating dry Chex Mix at like seven in the morning. 
and I had like all my beautiful snacks and like fresh fruit and water and like all the things. And she, I don't think did very well. And like, was really, I just didn't think she was like, after she was on the phone with someone and she was just like, I wasn't ready. And I felt really bad for her because this exam will take so much from you and there's so much pressure on you. But I felt also very grateful that I did feel really ready on my day of, and that it was just another Friday. And then I went and got drinks with my mom and it was fantastic. That's how I felt after that. Well, you, you put the work into it and it's knowing that that's what you've got to do, right? Just like you said, when you don't know what you're doing, you sometimes will just show up and then you're like, wait a minute, right? But you actually, you trained, you trained for it. You did it for six months and trained for it. So if I would have heard you when I was an undergrad, my approach would have been very different. So that's awesome. Do you mind sharing what your final score was? I don't remember the exact number, but I think maybe like a 514. But I know that okay. the number that sticks in my mind is the 97th percentile in chemistry and physics because I was like, oh, what, me? me? <laughs> yeah. me? This is my scoreboard? Holy, what? Um, and I think I did 91st uh, percentile overall. Um, That's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. I feel proud. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, because I know you are representing, you know, the doctors that come after us mm -hmm. with each rising generation. And mm -hmm. this is what we want to see, you know? So it's awesome. How did you go about funding? Because it's expensive, right? So yes. I like to bring out that portion because I struggled with that portion too. So I know a lot of students do. How did you go about funding just MCAT prep, MCAT and all that? Yeah, I think this is such an important question because I a lot of this information is just kind of like handed down in hallways or just in those like med student chat rooms. And I really hope that no one on here is still going on student doctor network because that is like the worst place to get information because it, it was devastating to me to go on there to find information because it basically just tells you you're not going to get into med school even if you got a perfect score on the MCAT and all that stuff. I had a friend who sent me some like she had just signed up for a Chase credit card and it was like no interest for a year on this Chase card. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, I took a lot of time between undergrad and grad school because I was working to save up money to be able to even take time off to study for the MCAT um, and still cover like the bills and everything. And then my MCAT prep course, which was like $1,000, applying to med school was like $1,000. Plus, like that's not even including, it was probably like $4,000 for all of that. And then the MCAT itself is $300, but also just the time that you're studying, I think is not something that is talked about in the terms of if you have to work to live, like any time that you're not working, you're not getting paid. And so that was a big challenge. But again, I'd saved up money for over five years and my family helped me out. I used this no interest for a year credit card and I put everything on that and people helped out with like points for travel and like other stuff. And then when I got into med school, I was very determined. I got scholarships and then I paid off that credit card with the scholarships. So, you know, cause it was, those are school expenses and those are fees and they had, and with some loans, I was like, I'm going to pay this off. So um, I think there's not a lot of credit literacy in um, students in general or like financial literacy around like how to access credit and build that now. I highly recommend people start doing that because that can also change the type of loans that you're offered. I have an excellent credit score, which is probably the score I'm more proud of than my MCAT <laughs> score, but it's really important to um, to plan ahead for the MCAT to know how expensive it is, not only just the, the fees that you're paying, but the amount of time that you won't be able to work. And I think that finding some of those credit card options, that's just what worked for me. And I had never heard of anyone doing that before. 
and a lot of my like classmates were just like, oh yeah, my parent, my family just paid for it. And I was like, that's cool for you, but not all of us have that. And so how are we going to um, be creative? And there's some scholarships. Um, my student organization, we offer some scholarships of 500, up to $500 to $1,000 to support students. And a lot of alumni associations will do that too. So reaching out to them and then even some medical schools will waive their fees if you reach out to them. The challenge with growing up in the Bay Area and California in general is that the income is too high to qualify for a lot of the federal aid programs, even if like you really don't have the funds to do this. So I didn't qualify for that program, but I reached out to a lot of medical schools and they waived a lot of the fees. Did you personally call the schools? I just emailed them. I didn't even have to talk to anybody. I just emailed their outreach and just said, hello financial barriers will stop me from applying to your school. At that point, I had my MCAT score. Mm-hmm. So this is like a little bit later in the application process. Um, and I could say, I, I like, I did well in MCAT and I think I'd be a strong candidate for your school. But the only thing stopping me from applying is the financial barrier. Could you do anything about that? And a lot of schools, like some of them I didn't even get interviewed at, but like they just like waived the fee, which was pretty sweet. Something that I wish I had started earlier because like pride and other things. I was like, no, I'll just like, I'll just work harder. And it's like, no, you can have freedom and take time off and go on vacations and do these things if you ask for help when you need it. So I encourage people to reach out to those schools and to alumni networks at those schools, especially for underrepresented minority students. There's a lot of support out there, but it's the same five people kind of get the support because they know people and whatnot. And so I don't know if that made any sense, but I encourage people to, to no, reach out. I think that's neat that they sometimes um, just not being scared to just ask. I mean, what's the worst thing they could say is no, right? You're in the same position. That's kind of my exactly. my approach in life. It's like, ask, you never know, mm-hmm. right? So, and that's what you did. You sent an email and said, look, and look at you ended up actually getting a lot of help. Uh, so you said you just finished your second year. Can you tell us what medical school has been like your first two years? Yeah. So my program is a little bit different. So I'm actually in a five-year program. Um, It's a dual degree where we get our master's during our first two and a half years, and then we transition over to clinical stuff. So my experience is very different from a lot of people because my program is 16 people a year. And I think we're one of the only medical schools that's like formatted this way. But I chose this school because I went to Berkeley for undergrad, right? But I didn't get to take a lot of classes there because I was working and because I was a psychology major. I didn't really have an opportunity to explore other things like ethnic studies and classes that I really wanted to take. And so my first two and a half years, I took every class that I could in the ethnic studies department. I took my research methods, two research methods courses. I took um, like just all of these amazing seminars and things. So I think I'm probably like, it's funny. I thought I'd go to med school and have to like conform into this very like straight edge medical student. And I've become totally radicalized of like, oh my gosh, let's, let's change the system. Let's do all of this stuff. And we can do this together in solidarity um, because of the classes that I took. So like being able to take courses from professors like Nikki Jones, who talks about carceral systems alongside methods and how we have to be aware of that and how medicine is reproducing those things and learning mm-hmm. from professor Tina Sachs, who wrote this phenomenal book, Invisible Visits. Like I got to be in a class with her. So like med school was cool. Um, I got to do anatomy. I loved my anatomy course and my anatomy professor was great. But the really important parts for me were the like the extracurricular stuff, which was starting our White Coats for Black Lives chapter, meeting with amazing faculty, Dr. Aisha Mays, who um, founded the Dream Youth Clinic in Oakland. I worked with her last summer and built, helped build a community garden. Like that was amazing. Um, it wasn't probably what I expected to hear about like, what was med school like? I'm like, 
I went to more concerts than I ever have in my entire life. Like I had a lot of fun. Um, and I studied really hard and I worked really hard. Our coursework is entirely problem-based learning, which is different, right? So no lectures. So it was very self-driven, which looking back on it, some lectures would have been nice. Sometimes it's nice to have someone just tell you what you need to know. But I really enjoyed like learning the learning how to learn about medicine and learning how to ask really good questions and how to outline the boundaries of what I know and what I do not know. I think those were the most important things that I learned kind of in first year. And I think that um, a skill that I learned in the MCAT that I, I haven't touched upon yet is like knowing when to let something go and knowing when to say, you know, I actually don't know this right now, but I can figure out how to figure it out. In the MCAT, a lot of times people, I think, spend too much time on a problem because they think they can like brute force their way through it and then end up losing a lot of time. And then that's like the worst thing that can happen is you run out of time and then you didn't get to some questions that you might have known, but just because you like couldn't let it go. And so learning that for the MCAT has really been helpful here because instead of just like when I'm like facing challenges of like, I wasn't a biology major, so I'm coming in feeling like, oh my God, I'm in, I'm in a deficit compared to my classmates who are biochem majors or taught high school children biology for five years or like something like that. Mm-hmm. I know that I know what I don't know and I know how to go find out what I don't know. And that mm-hmm. a lot of it came from uh, my approach to the MCAT and um, that patience with myself. And you're never going to know everything either. Nope. <laughs> There's too Absolutely much. <laughs> There's too much. There too is. much. <laughs> oh man. But we will always have up to date. Thankfully. Yes. You will research for the rest of your life <laughs> yes. and look it up. And now you said you founded the White Coast for Black Lives, right? And then another program that you mentioned was the Pathway Development Program. Can you talk a little bit about both of those? Yeah. So I co-founded with um, several classmates, the White Coats for Black Lives chapter at our school. Mm-hmm. Um, and within that, we have a pathway development program, which is very similar to kind of what you're doing, um, where we have seminars where we teach people. I love the seminar on how to study for the MCAT. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can definitely share my slides um, if you're interested. Yeah, I have to find them. Um, <laughs> but like we had like so I taught the seminar on how to um, study for the MCATs. Uh, my other friends taught the seminars on um, how to apply to medical school, how to write a personal statement, how to find research opportunities mm-hmm. if there are no lemon bars available. And we uh, together kind of just run this um, workshop series and we have amazing undergraduate fellows that we pay. Mm-hmm. So um, Camila Hurtado and I wrote a grant and everyone contributed to this grant that we got $65,000 to kind of run this program. And so we offer scholarships and we pay um, underrepresented minority students to help run the logistics of it. And we do amazing things. My colleague Fatuma, she started a mentorship part of that. So I have two mentees that I work with, one at Berkeley and one at UCLA, who are both going to be amazing physicians one day. Yeah, we, we write letters. We um, do a lot of advocacy work. We wrote a resolution um, for the San Francisco and Marin Medical Associations to declare racism a public health emergency. We hosted a rally um, of over 600 healthcare workers that I co-led with my colleague Fatuma. And we're just like, we have a great website and we're doing a lot of stuff. So it was just one of those things, again, of like, I wish I had someone telling me this information um, when we were applying to medical school. And a lot mm-hmm. of it is about challenging imposter syndrome, which is interesting because I'm actually like at a place now of like, I am a medical student. Like, I, this is what I do. I am here every day. I've got, you can't see me, but I've got like my medical student glasses on. Like I study, this is what I do. 
And a lot of that came from like this group of people. And um, my colleague Fatuma, I really credit with kind of breaking that for me because I was like asking her one day, I was like, do you feel welcomed like at this campus? Like I struggled so long at Berkeley and undergrad because I didn't feel welcomed here. And she was like, why would I need to be welcomed at a place that's mine? And I was like, that is a really good point. What? Okay. Exactly. Yeah, this is mine. That's my house. You I'm belong here. there. Yes. Yes. You belong there. And so I'm like, there. okay. <laughs> like, let's reorient this whole thing. And then that advice, plus my mom um, kind of in med school, just saying like that I need to set my own standard has been really helpful in just reorienting kind of how I come to this work. And my standard is that I know that I will not know things, but I know how to find out. I know how to mm-hmm. ask for help. I know how to work really hard. And I know that I also need am a person that needs to have fun and live a life and contribute to things that I feel meaningful to me. And like mm-hmm. part of that is doing things like this, like talking to people about the MCAT, even though it was a, a little while ago for me, like making sure that any information that I have, um, that was helpful for me, that everybody else also has that. And I forgot what question we were talking about. That's okay, about. because we are having a nice conversation. <laughs> And it's coming out so naturally because you're speaking from your heart. And I think that's what's important because the reality is what what we've discovered. And, you know, Dr. Marina and I are a lot older than you, that it's all psychological. A lot of the issues that we we faced from undergrad into medical school in residency, too, a lot of it is psychological, like, Mm -hmm. you know, just realizing, no, wait a minute, I do belong here. I grew up in this area. Mm-hmm. I'm serving the patients that are like me, right? Mm-hmm. So um, sharing all of that is very, very important. And being able to overcome those psychological barriers that we feed into ourselves, into our brain. Absolutely. What I would like is, do you guys have for the, the Pathway Development Program, do you guys have a Facebook where you announce whenever you guys mm-hmm. are? Because what I can do is I can forward it to our listeners so that way when they are interested, I get things from LMSA, from SNMA, and I usually just forward it so that way people can start getting exposed. Yes, please. Oh, the imposter syndrome came up because that's one of the things that we talk about a lot, um, kind of in every seminar, just like how to navigate that and how to make sure that people know how to like claim their power. Because med school is hard enough. We don't have to torture ourselves of like, do I belong here? It's like, you're here. You belong here. I still struggle with it, okay? Yes, I, <laughs> As know, already I know, a I know, doctor. I know. I'm talking a whole lot. This is like the first month of my life that I have ever felt this way, but I'm trying to like, it's just in- incredibly freeing in this one point in time to feel this way. And I hope that for all of us that we do feel that way, mm-hmm. because I think something you said was really important. And this is what I, I tell a lot of my mentees is like, I always felt like I was behind everybody else mm-hmm. um, in terms of like, being a non-traditional student, being from community college, like being moving around 12 times, growing up in what was the hood that is now hood adjacent because of gentrification and all of these things. Mm-hmm. But all of those are my extracurriculars. And I think that a lot of people feel like, especially coming from underrepresented backgrounds or people who've gone through hardship, that like that's a deficit. But when we're going into serve underserved populations, that is like the best training that we could have ever had. And a lot of people are having to like now learn, like a lot of my classmates are having to learn about racism in real time mm-hmm. in 2021. And I'm like, oh no, I've been new about this. I don't have to yes. learn about this <laughs> moment. I feel it and I know it and I know how my people feel it. And there's things that I want to do to change it, but I'm actually way ahead of the curve on a lot of this stuff. So one mm-hmm. of the things I'm actually working with um, some faculty in my thesis is about creating anti-racism and medical education curriculum for people of color. Because a lot of it is focused on like non-people of color and not focused on like what we could be learning and how to be advocates for our communities and 
supporting each other, everything from the MCAT and beyond. Well, I hope it goes well, and then we can institute it into all the medical schools. <laughs> yeah, it would be amazing. Be cool. It's a start. It's a start. Mm-hmm. So, do you, so are you thinking of going into emergency medicine? Is that kind of what you're thinking? It is kind of what I'm thinking. I think, um, again, like from undergrad to now, like the best um, opportunities have always been open for me after doing internships like this. So I really wanted to live somewhere else for a summer and I'm interested in the field of emergency medicine. Um, Unfortunately, we're still in this global pandemic. um, So this is actually a virtual internship, but because I'm here and visiting family, I can do some in-person stuff, which is really nice. But yeah, I think the emergency room has been a place that I've had to go um, because I had nowhere else to go or my family's had to go because they've had nowhere else to go. And we've had really awful experiences and we've had really amazing life-saving experiences. And so what I'm trying to decide for myself is if I want to have a career that has so much um, trauma and suffering and that might be a little deep for an MCAT prep webinar, but um, (laughs) just like, you know, I think that there's a lot of ways to help um, without necessarily having to be in the middle of the hardest parts of things. So I'm trying to figure out how to be most effective for my community, but also to live a full, healthy, and happy life for myself. Yes. And so emergency medicine might be that. Adolescent health really feels like what I want to do. I'd love to run a clinic like my amazing mentor, Dr. Mays, where she has a community garden and like a youth shelter and like a clinic that is so amazing in Oakland. Um, and I'd love to be a professor one day. So Academic. Academic. Yeah. Yes. That would be amazing. Awesome. Fingers crossed. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Given what you've told me, you will get there. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. No doubt. I think when it comes from your heart, it'll happen because many people around you see it. I hope so. So I think definitely it, it'll happen. And when you go back and serve your community, what you'll see is everybody wants to be your patient <laughs> because you get them because yeah. you get them. And it's hard when, if you ever have to leave a situation like a job or whatever it might be, how connected those patients, it's like, I'm not going to find anybody else like you because there's so few of you. Right. Yeah. But hopefully we'll start changing that. So that way we can get more people that yeah. patients feel comfortable with. Absolutely. So before closing, um, what would be a piece of advice that you'd give maybe to a first year pre-med student that's starting just this year or a student that's about to take their MCAT? Hmm. I knew this question was coming and I still am like, there's so many things. That's okay. Uh, (laughs) I think taking real breaks was something that I was never really that good at. And I felt burnt out before I even got to med school. And with the MCAT, knowing that it's that marathon training, knowing that the pre-med pathway is a very long marathon before an even longer marathon, Mm -hmm. learning how to take really solid breaks is really important. Um, and something that I'm still working on, uh, especially because the days just kind of get filled and they just keep going that way. Learning how to let things go. Not every academic success or failure is will define you. I like did really well in MCAT and that's wonderful, but that's like not who I am. Like that's not everything that I am. It's just a part of my story, including all of my amazing physician friends who did not do well in the MCAT. Like this is just a very small part of my classmate, she called it the necessary paperwork. Like this is just paperwork that you have to do to get to the next level. It's not, but looking at it from that side, it can feel like this is the biggest thing. This is a culmination of everything of who I am. And I think trying to separate kind of who we are from our academic performance 
is an interesting thing. Um, and I encourage people to find uh, ways to like feel their own identity outside of that, um, because that will also help you with your application process. Um, because if all you ever have to say is, I studied really hard, that's cool. Everyone else studies really hard too. Mm-hmm. What makes you special? What um, about your community makes you the right person to go back and serve that community? I think the learning how to let things go and learning how to kind of move through, I think, the successes and failures that you will have on this pathway and having the people to reach out to to support you um, when you do that is really important. And um, yeah, I listened to Nipsey Hussle. Uh, he was the one who got me through. Um, rest in peace. He was the one who got me through the MCAT and having my like picture of Serena Williams. And I was like, I'm getting in her mindset to go and do this. Like have your rituals, whatever they are. I listen to like, sorry, this is like really out of pocket rap music. When I studied, like I learned the amino acids to like very um, inappropriate songs that I won't even name right now because I don't want anyone to look them up. But like, that's what worked for me. Cause like yeah. I needed that beat. I needed this like bringing of my whole self because that's like who I am. And I encourage people to do whatever makes them feel the most themselves, whatever makes them feel the most whole and healthy as they're doing this process, because this process will take a lot from us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not necessarily a lot on the other side that's going to give it back. So learning those strategies now to feel like I can do this, I'm supported by my people, and I will do it my way mm-hmm. um, is really important. And I hope everybody finds that. Well, that was amazing. Thank you so much for speaking from your heart. I think just if nobody's actually looking at it, even just listening to it, it's powerful. Like what you are sharing is so powerful. And I'm so excited you're going to be a doctor <laughs> very soon. <laughs> I think it's amazing. Yeah. And all the work that you've done and don't lose it as you're going through, because like life gets harder. Sometimes things come up, family life, but I mean, you've been through it. So the resiliency will go through. So thank you so much. And I'm I'm so happy you did so well on the MCAT and you're sharing your words of wisdom. Again, I wish I would have heard you when I was in college. It would have been amazing because I would have been able to prepare better. Thank you. I hope our listeners today have gained a little bit more wisdom as they pursue their path to medicine. The MCAT is very hard and a large part of performing well really boils down to the time you take to prepare, learning good studying strategies, and addressing the psychological barriers that often block our minds. And to this, I mean the fear of failure, not feeling smart enough to just name a few. Please remember that you are smart enough and good enough to be a doctor. Also, keep in mind that a test is a measure of knowledge at one significant point in time, but not a measure of your intelligence or who you can be. As Dr. Dweck quotes, test scores and measures of achievement tell you where a student is, but they don't tell you where a student can end up. Thank you again, and don't forget to share our podcast with anyone who may benefit from it. You can now find us on YouTube as well. Please let us know what you think, what you like, what you don't like, and then check us out on Instagram, Facebook, or you can contact us by emailing us through our website, www.futureminoritydoctor.com. And lastly, if you're able to donate to our podcast to keep this effort going, peace and love, everyone.